All right, Rob, say something. Something. Toughly say something. No. Okay, good. Fire when ready. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the NeedCoffee.com podcast, The Soundboard. This is edition number 33 and a third. So, yes, you're jumping with joy that we've we've rounded up. Uh, I'm Rob Levy. I am in the chair this week leading the madness. Please bear with me. I'm so sorry. Uh, Joining me, first and foremost, writer, madman, and all-around... Cheap bottle washer for needcoffee.com. Mr. Widget Walls. Hello, uh, sir. Hello, Rob. How are you, sir? I'm okay. And also joining me, the uh, esteemed forward for the Winnipeg Jets, Tuffley. Um, hi. I, uh, I thought you'd like that introduction. I Well, it, the travel is exhausting, so that kind of that feels where I'm at right now, so that's yeah. good. Oh, yes. okay, I'm sorry, can I ask a, a non-sports person question? Yes. That, that is actually relevant to this podcast. I yes. thought the lead for the Jets was Benny. Okay, moving on. <laughs> well, Benny was the piano man. Oh, well, I, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, that, uh, that joke was not funny in pre-production either when we got the scripts, but that's okay. Sorry. No, it's okay. So all kinds of uh, craziness. I have never had such a weird selection of stories before while I've been helming the soundboard, so... Uh, this should be a fun ride tonight. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for uh, for listening. And a reminder, uh, as we talk about music today uh, during this podcast, if you are interested in getting any of that music or just any of the things that we name check during the podcast, you may go to uh, needcoffee.com and go to the Amazon link and you can purchase it. And then Widge gets kickbacks and it helps keep the site running and it's very, very important. And there is a link right on needcoffee.com that takes you right to Amazon, correct? Uh, yes, there is a there is a search bar. You can search directly from needcoffee.com on the right hand side of every page uh, to take you to Amazon, and you can just bookmark needcoffee.com/amazon, and that will take you to the front page, like you went to the front page. Go figure. Yes. So uh, we'll start off every podcast like we do, sort of with the uh, with the role of the dead. Uh, a lot of people this uh, since we've last convened have gone, but we're going to kind of limit it to a few. Uh, I thought I'd start with Van Cliburn, who I know Rox talked a little bit about this on uh, Weekend Justice, but the pianist Van Cliburn that I remember sort of from the TV commercials growing up with the KTEL Records Van Cliburn collection. But um, doing a little more research, this guy was pretty much a heavyweight. He played, uh, he was a pianist. Uh, in 1958 is kind of his, his big year that he broke onto the scene. He was the winner of the first international Tchaikovsky piano competition at the age of 23, which is a huge deal. It was in Russia. So an American piano player won a prestigious Russian um, competition, which is a pretty big deal back in the time, because I think up until that time, the Russians pretty much owned uh, classical music. And uh, he also, just as a side note, has played uh, at the White House for every president since Eisenhower, which is you know kind of amazing when you think about it. You've got that much clout. There's very few performers that have done that. Uh, in addition to, to getting the National Medal of Arts from America, he got the Russian Order of Friendship, um, Presidential Medal of Freedom, and a Kennedy Center honor. So he's got some some pretty big heavy hitters there, and he also is the best-selling classical musician uh, of all time. And he had the first classical record to hit the Billboard charts, uh, which is pretty significant as well. With a piano, uh, I think a piano. Is it, is it the first? Yeah, I think it's uh, the first Tchaikovsky. Uh, piano concert, and that was, uh, I think, in the 50s as well. Right after Billboard opened, he was the first pianist to hit 
uh, billboard with a classical chart. So that's a pretty significant thing. Uh, gentlemen, any thoughts? Uh, well, the only thing I was going to say is that I, of course, uh, not being as familiar with the classical musical genre as yeah. I probably should be, I think I my, um, yeah, I, th I think my, uh, classical music, um, knowledge ended with, uh, what was it? Stars on 45. Wasn't that? Yes. Yes. So, uh, so I, I, I just, yeah, sorry. Um, so I, I was looking up on Wikipedia, which is always right. And it said that his mom had studied under a student of Liszt, which is crazy. I know. So, That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this guy is like, uh, you know, I didn't know that it was possible in this day and age to have like classical music royalty. But I mean, he was yeah. pretty much it. And I am sort of surprised that uh, somebody at some point didn't like pull him into some kind of crazy super group. I mean, if super heavy exists then why wasn't this guy a part of it? That's my question. Yeah. Kind of a, yeah, it's very weird because, you know, you think of Horowitz, you think of Marvin Hamlish, you think of like Liberace, these like sort of classical heavyweights. And he's just sort of like, they're always kind of out there, but you never really think about it. And to be fair, I didn't really realize that he was super big until Rox mentioned it. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, Van Clyburn was big. I kind of remember him always being around. I remember seeing him on TV as a kid and things, but I never really had sort of any idea of just how big of a heavy hitter he was, which is kind of interesting, so... Tuffley, do you want to add anything? I think you covered everything that I was going to say. So okay. Well, I will move on. I will, thank you. I will move on to next to Patty Page, which is a bit more significant. Uh, the best-selling female artist of the 1950s. Uh, her biggest hit, I think everyone has heard, sort of at one time or another, that may not realize it, the Tennessee Waltz. Um, one of the few sort of people – she's important because she's one of the few country artists that transitioned – from country into pop, sort of right when rock and roll broke. And she's, outside of having a female person do it, uh, which is amazing, just having an artist do that in general. And she has pretty much been, since 1950, on the road and out there and, and uh, playing shows, hugely inf influential for people like Roseanne Cash, uh, Roseanne Cash um, Loretta Lynn, Tammy Wynette, Katie Lang, uh, you, na you name pretty much any sort of country female singer that has also done had pop records or achieved rock sort of records as well as sort of like um a lot of those vocalists that sort of transitioned from pop into sort of what we now call easy listening as well she was pretty huge on all of those fronts so kind of an interesting an interesting character in the world of of, of american pop and, and rock history i think uh and let me just jump in and say that uh it even if you don't know that you know Tennessee Waltz, you know how much is that doggy in the window. Which, yes, which, that was the other one, yes. Yeah, which, which, which uh, you know, I did not know was actually a number one hit. Yeah, I think it was, what, for three, four weeks or something? No, no like, it was, well, it was on the charts for like five months, I think. Yeah. But I'm like, really? That's really? So, but anyway, it was there. So there you it go. It was a different time. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. And, and yeah. she seemed to have come out of what, what was kind of a fertile period for uh, female singers, particularly in country. Yeah. But a lot of them couldn't cross over. I mean, that was a death yeah. knell for a lot of them. I think, you know, had Patsy Cline lived longer, she probably would have too. But um, she kind of managed to do that. Cro I mean, I, I know we've talked about it, but crossing over for a, a, an artist in the 50s was a big, Was it was kind of scary. It was probably as scary as the actors moving from silent films into talkies. You know, kind of as an equivalent. It was it was like kind of a whole new turf, uh, so to speak. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. You get this period of, you know, Patty Page and Patsy Klein and, and, and that kind of crop that come through the country circles. And then somewhere, I guess, once rock hit, um, especially in the country genre, it was a lot more male. It became a lot more male dominated, mm-hmm. which is a bit strange. So there's like a whole period after after Patty Page hit and after Patsy Klein hit that just flat nothing for female artists. Yeah. And so you get to like the 60s. So I find that interesting. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, too, because she was kind of like it and it for like a very long time and then yeah. sort of restarted. So and the last one uh, that we're going to talk about today was Patty Andrews, who you may be scratching your head about. And I go on and on about losing all these legend people. But this one is kind of a big deal. Uh, Patty Andrews died at the age of 94, 94. She was the last remaining member of the Andrews sisters, which in the 40s, uh, especially since sort of the World War II to the 50s era, the, the Andrews sisters were a big deal. There wouldn't be a Pointer sisters. There wouldn't be a Spice Girls if there was not an Andrews sisters. Um, they sort of were the template setter for these like early rock and R&B um, girl bands. And they sold over 75 million records. And um, that's a pretty big deal when you consider with 75 million albums since 1942, 43. Uh, But you might know Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree, Boogie Woogie Beautiful Boy, a lot of these sort of records that have kind of infiltrated American popular culture, kind of like how much is that doggy in the window and make you say, oh, yeah, I've heard that or peripherally heard that. Had a bit of a comeback uh, when Bette Midler did um, (laughs) her big movie um, in, I think, 73 or 74. And uh, the sort of got them a revitalization, but a pretty significant blow to those who just like really great American pop music. And uh, the last Andrew sister, which you know, that's kind of sad. It's it, it's like you're losing a big part of your generation, and it's it's very very sad. Right, and uh, and I, I was looking up because I'd remembered they had done some. Um, uh, well, they had appeared with Abbott and Costello yep. uh, in their films. But but what I was looking up, and again, on Wikipedia, which is always right, um, they were saying they had appeared in 17 Hollywood films, which is more uh, than any other singing music group, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, a, a huge deal. I, I, I did not realize that um, uh, that she was the last, but that, that, that is huge. And do you have anything you want to add to that, Tuffley? They went a really long time. They, I think they actually stopped being active in 1967, is that right? Yeah, with the original lineup, yeah. Yeah, which is a really long run for any act. I mean, when you think about, too, being in an act with your family for yeah. that long. <laughs> yeah, how you long know. did Oasis go? Um. <laughs> you know, how long, you know, when you think of Mar and Morrissey and Oasis and, um, you know, all these other bands that have people that aren't related or do have brother, people that are related. Yeah. And either way, they have to be, you know, getting an artist to be in a band with other people that long is, is, is pretty impressive. And they were, you know, they were the first sort of big USO band as well, which um, I, I know we sort of just scratch our heads and go, huh? But that concept of like, you know, the, the, the girl group going abroad and sort of being there to, to cheer up troops and things that yeah. sort of started there. And, they were huge. I think I think they may have been the biggest selling artist in sort of the war period. I mean, pretty much World War II, you had 
you know, Dink Crosby, Glenn Miller, and the Andrews sisters, sort of as the yeah. three sort of pinnacles of that era. And they managed to sustain the wave, I think, pop, part partly because the, you know, the rise of girl groups in the 50s and 60s, they sort of, you know, they didn't, they didn't really hurt anything that the, you know, all those Phil Spector bands came along. That still helped them. So they had a sound that sort of, was nostalgic, but also sort of sort of timely at the same time, and I think that's part of their appeal as well. So, and, and I like to point out that uh, just to show how times have changed, um, they were uh, the go-to people for the USO uh, back in the day, and these days I understand it's Henry Rollins. So, there you go. Yep. And it's you know it's interesting because I mean we always talk about how music gets passed on. I always would hear the Andrews sisters in the car with my dad on the old East station. Cause he would get all excited when he heard them. Cause that was the band he would hear when he was in the Navy, you know? Hmm. Um, and then I'd always hear, Oh, the Andrews sisters, they were great. Blah, 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 blah. So that was kind of my introduction to them and sort of how I got into the forties and fifties rock and jazz and stuff. So a very sort of interesting, uh, footnote in the history of American pop music were the Andrews Sisters, just for longevity, longevity, popularity, and sort of cultural impact across the board. I think sort of for three female singers to be that prolific, you know, I guess across media, which at the time is radio, the USO, and, and some live performances, and then also films, that's kind of a big deal. I think they're sort of the first big superstar girl band. Right, you know, maybe them and the Lemon Sisters. I think at that time, that's pretty much it. Yeah, and I was just looking the uh, talking about the when you mentioned they're being prolific. Is that it looks like they had songs charting, like like at least at least at the very least a half dozen a year from 1938 all the way to 1950. Looks like every year. Uh, and then, then it dropped off in 1951 with just three of them. But yeah, that's yeah. that's uh, that's nothing to sneeze at or on. No. And moving onward to uh, more cheery things, it is almost spring, which is uh, a good thing, not just for people that hate winter, but for people that love music. Spring is probably the apex of our year musically. I know that there's a ton of records that always come out at Christmas, but those tend to be the stuff that they want to cash in on and and sort of uh, in the year to bang on. But this is sort of the, uh, using Tuffley's expression again, the fertile ground for releases coming out uh, for 2013. And with that in mind, there's a lot. Uh, I know we touched upon this on Weekend Justice and, and in this other podcast before. There's a ton of new records out. So I thought we'd just take a minute just to sort of start out and talk about sort of a couple records that are new that we've been listening to. Um, I guess since I'm in the driver's seat, I'll start. Uh, and then that way, Tuffy, Tuffy could be the person to yell. And uh, plus, it's interesting because it'll it'll all be so diametrically different that it'll be fun. Um, I do want to start by mentioning um, the album Three by the Unknown Mortal Orchestra, which is out on Jag Jaguar. It's a very sort of pop electro kind of album, sort of like a slower chromio. And Jag Jaguar is just having some amazing. Uh, records out these days so i do want to mention that and that's uh, a fun record it is a fun record i do also want to mention indigo meadow which is the brand new album from the black angels who so if you sort of like that dirty grungy sound uh that combined with like some great psychedelic heavy rock the black angels may be the band for you uh also waves this is the time of year when every band with two vowels or two letters in a row makes a record and waves with two v's 
uh, have a new record uh, dropping soon called Fear of Heights. Uh, it's a little crunchier than their last record, so I, I do want to mention that. And um, the new record from Johnny Marr, which I know I've talked about a couple times, called The Messenger. Uh, he sings on it. And uh, if you're a fan of the Smiths kids, you'll you'll like this. And Mr. Robin Hitchcock also has a new record out called Live from London. Uh, you always get a solid, if not surreal, experience uh, from Robin Hitchcock as well. So I've narrowed mine down to four. I could go on for hours but I thought I'd stop, start there and then hand it off to you fine gentlemen uh, just to sort of see what's out that you're looking forward to. Uh, okay. Um, I'm surprised you didn't mention the Suede record. I left I left other things for other people. Ah, I see. Uh, the band called Suede, uh, or I don't know, are they going to be the London Suede when it's released over here again? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, uh, that band, uh, haven't been a record since the 90s. Uh, they've got a new record out called Blood Sports. And uh, if you're a big fan of uh, the uh, the classic Britpop sound, uh, you should check that out. Really, really nice stuff They're there. on tour now. Yes, they are. Um, and uh, the other thing I was going to mention, uh, Depeche Mode, they do have a new record coming out in a couple of weeks. It's called Delta Machine. Um, uh, the There's two tracks out now. There's one called Heaven, and I... They just played the other one on BBC a couple of days ago, and I can't yeah. remember the name of it. They, they also were on Letterman with the new single, and if you go to the Letterman website, you can catch the whole session. Yeah. They did like three or four songs for Letterman. Yeah, the record's called Delta Machine. We're always a little skeptical of Depeche Mode records these days, but uh, it's at least <laughs> worth a listen. Yeah. It's interesting, too, how they sort of survived, because sort of like now it's kind of like, where is this going? And I I haven't liked the single yet. It seems sort of slow and painful, but we'll see, you know, we'll see. And they're going to tour as they, well. They do tour, which is, which is probably the best reason to have Depeche Mode continuing to put out records. Uh, because they seem, they seem to get better as a live act over time. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. So, uh, there's that, uh, the strokes again, a band we're always skeptical about when they put out a new record. Uh, but, uh, come down machine sounds hopeful. So, We'll see. Yeah, I did not like the first the I liked the first two, but I did not like the third one very much. So we'll see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um well, you know, the 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 Albert Hammond records, I've always found uh the solo records uh that have come out actually during the records that nobody liked, uh were a lot more interesting. So mm-hmm. I think some of the guys were a little more focused on uh other projects than doing strokes records. And yeah. even with even from things I've heard about Come Down Machine, I mean they're not touring they're not doing any interviews. Um, so it, it seems to be, I don't know if they, if this is another one of those, everybody else is doing something records, but um, hopefully if nothing else, if this album is bad, if nothing else, there is an Albert Hammond Jr. album coming very soon, which would be nice. So I'll put it like that. Well, it's interesting too, because Casablancas has a new label too. Yeah. He, so he's got bands out on that, but the other interesting thing about the Strokes is that when they play live, they don't do encores, which is incredibly frustrating uh, for people that want to see them because all their songs are two and a half minutes. So you're like, okay, I, I paid to see an hour and six to ten minutes of music, and that's it, you know. So they've never really been a band that's played by normal convention. They sort of always validated the hype by having attitude, and I'm not necessarily sure that pays off. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens to them now. I think. 
And uh, that's all I know. We're going to talk about Mr. Bowie shortly, <sighs> so I think I'll yes. I'll skip that for now. Yes. Uh, okay. <clears throat> I will say that uh, Friend of Need Coffee, Clutch, has a new album that is coming out this very week uh, called Earth Rocker, uh, which I have not heard. Uh, but there's been something for me to like on pretty much everything that they've mm-hmm. done, so I'm not uh, I'm not too terribly worried about that. And they're uh, also touring. They they I, do they ever stop touring? I don't. That's I, true. I don't know that they do. I think yeah. I think they record albums uh, as they are walking up onto the stage for the next gig. Um, <clears throat> also, and I'd I'd mention this to both of you guys. Uh, at long last, Wood Kids album, The Golden Age, is out this week. Um, if you don't know who Woodkid is, you do. You just don't know that you do. Uh, his single Iron, which came out on an EP in 2011, has been used in freaking everything from, I, I think it was in Django Unchained. I know it was in an Assassin's Creed commercial. Um, it's all over the place. And uh, it's, it's, it's like an orchestral gasm. I mean, it's just nuts. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I have heard the album now, uh, and uh, I like it. I'm still sort of easing into it. Uh, I think the um, uh, the high points for me have been the singles and really some of the B sides to the uh, the singles. B side singles EPs. Do they even do those titles even make sense anymore? I don't know. Uh, yeah. But like Baltimore's Fireflies is an amazing uh, track, <clears throat> which is not actually on the album. But uh, so that is really good. Uh, I'm just sort of uh, pissed at the limited edition that comes with the book that expands on the sort of um story that the album tells uh is only available in the UK uh so that's crap um but uh two other things that uh, that caught my attention um and maybe you guys mentioned this and it was just during one of my blackouts but uh Steve Martin and Edie Brickell have an album coming out like in uh April yes Are, am am I am I pleased or frightened well you're excited there's a Steve Martin album well, always, but but you know, and this is his bluegrass band, I believe, with Edie Brickell. Right. Yeah. So, so it's it, you know, it's not a comedy record. The blue, the, the he's very serious about the bluegrass. Album. Oh no, no, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. I so, meant just musically. Am I? And you know, it's just there's there's something about the the Steve Martin and Edie Brickell, which I never yes. thought I would be saying. Yeah. Together. Well, my my. Love for Edie Brickell rivals only my passion for Spandau Ballet, so um, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> uh, and moving swiftly away from that, uh, my understanding is we should expect a, uh, a Daft Punk album at some point in the near future. Yes, yes they signed to Columbia. If the commercial teasing of snippets of they've been showing uh, are any indication, yes. Possibly longer than 15 seconds. <laughs> that would be good. Yes. So uh so so yeah, that's 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 what I've been looking at. And uh if, again, you can always check our podcast for links to all these albums or you can also get them on Amazon through the Need Coffee link as we discussed before. Indeed. And moving on to new releases, moving on from new releases to talking about another new release, otherwise called as Tuffley's favorite part of the show. Um Mr. David Bowie, uh, believe it or not, is poised to possibly have his first number one album on Billboard. I was kind of surprised to, to learn about this. <laughs> yeah. But it looks like for the week, we're recording this um, the week of uh, March the 16th, and the, that week at Billboard, um, 
he's fighting it out right now with Bon Jovi, but the, they're saying that it looks like David Bowie will have the number one album in the country for the very, very first time. For the um, first, how, how is that possible? I don't know. The highest he's ever gotten was Station to Station in 76. Yeah, so, Let's Dance, Let's Dance never hit number one. Wow. Um, I know it's a pretty and crazy. It's pretty incredible that David Bowie's never had a number one record. Um, it's also pretty astounding that people are buying it in large numbers. Because normally, you know, if you don't have a number one record by this point, you know, you're just selling to a cult base. So I'm reading this, and I'm, and I'm looking through it through the blinders of, a little bit because I I do like David Bowie. Mm. But one, I'm very happy for him, and two, I'm kind of astounded. And kind of beyond shock that David Bowie's never had a number one album. Yeah. But I am also uh, equally surprised that this one, the next day, is the one that's going to get him a number one. And I, it, it's just kind of, it's kind of weird, you know, for me to to, to see this happening. So I just thought I'd, uh, I'd put that in there for discussion amongst the board. Well, what did, what did you make of the record? You know, it's an interesting record because you have to sort of warm to it. I mean, it's it's it's. It's not, he didn't sort of try to be David Bowie that he used to be. He didn't try to like be insulting and sort of relive his glory days. He sort of made a very mature, older, what I call elder statesman kind of record. Yeah. And his voice still sounds great. Um, you know, it's a, it's a probably a, a different sort of album than what we've heard from in the past. And I think that production wise they did a really good job of making him still say still sound interesting yeah but you know the fact that david bowie's having a number one album but you don't hear the song on the radio like any of the alternative major alternative quote-unquote stations aren't really playing it we don't have mtv right now it's a pretty big deal for him to get a number one record based on units sold you know and i'm sure a lot of it is you know internet driven sales and digital sales which i, I think play into his favor but at the same time, I'm kind of surprised because I was thinking there were other records that would have gotten him there and that this was sort of a record that would have a very small niche audience of people that would be interested and want to read it or want yeah. to hear it. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking because I'm, I'm just was trying to see where other stuff went. You had uh, Station to Station at three. You had Let's Dance got to four. Diamond Dogs went to five. I mean, he's gotten close a few times, but... Yeah. Now he he does it, you know he's 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 good in the UK. I mean he's he's getting number ones in the UK. Yeah. You know. Yeah, he's getting number ones everywhere else, pretty much. But yeah. now, now let me just ask you this because if I remember correctly, the announcement of this was not that long ago, and was just sort of almost like, oh, and by the way, new album. I mean that that's what it seemed like to me. Yeah. It and, was on his birthday in what January? Yes. It was on his birthday in January, and they 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 released he released the single and said, "Oh yeah, new album." So so, how much of this do you think is due to the fact that you didn't have a lot of time to ramp up to it? You didn't have a you know like a year of oh it's coming it's coming it's coming sort of hype mm -hmm. building, um, and it was treated like oh I mean yeah like Tuffley said here's a single by the way new album. I mean how how much of that how much of his success is due to his approach with this? Do you think? Um, you know, I, that's a very good question. I don't know. I mean, I was kind of shocked when there was a new record. I was like, what? Bowie made a new record? Really? Yeah, the sky's yeah. falling? I mean, Ten it was kind of like, yeah. you know, it was kind of like, 
you always kind of thought he might do a new record, but you never thought that, you know, he'd announce that there'd be a new record and then it would come out. You never sort of expected, oh, by the way, I've made a new record. It's done. You know, because um, you didn't really hear anything about, oh, he's in the studio making a new album. Because a lot of times, an artist, when they're in the studio and it's their com- quote unquote comeback album, they sort of say, hey, he's in the studio making a comeback album. And then they build up to the hype. Whereas this, you know, they sort of eliminated all the hype and just said, okay, David Bowie's got a new record. Here he is coming out, bang, done. So I think he got a really good out of the gate sort of sales based on the curiosity of, wow, David Bowie's made a record. Let's hear it, you know. Um, and, and I think in this case the marketing sort of almost worked. Um, it's very interesting that it sort of just wasn't announced. It wasn't built up. It just boom, it came out. It's it's almost as if and, and the cover does a job of this as well. But it's almost as if it's an imageless album. Yeah. Which is interesting. At least, at least for Bowie, yeah. um, uh, it, just the album. I'm not talking about the videos, but if you look at, oh, just you know, oh, here's the single. Oh, yeah, album's out in two months. Yeah, and 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 for especially for someone, we are now starting to get videos. Um, for uh, I think the stars come out tonight is the, is the one that's that's making the rounds right now. Um, but uh, for for the longest time, most of the promotion of this has been. People, other people reporting on this album. Yeah, that's been the promotion for this record, uh, which is which is interesting. Um, but I, I think also it's it's I, I think he just wanted to put the record out. Yeah, I, I don't think there was anything behind it. I just think you know they and apparently there's more material than than what's been released, so we could actually get something else maybe soon. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, it's kind of interesting too because you know no Coachella, no Lollapalooza, no big festival dates. You know he's David Bowie, obviously. You know, right? He's one of those people like McCartney that can just sort of write his own ticket and do whatever he wants. But he chose the most low key kind of way to do it. You know, it's almost like the Pope carrying his own luggage, sort of. You know, musically, so to speak. It's just kind of like wow, you put out an album and here it is. You know. It was so humble and almost so unhyped that it was kind of gratifying not to not to have to get like tired of hearing about oh there's a new David Bowie album coming out for God's sakes just put it out you know that was kind of nice and it was yeah. kind of a, a, a neat way of doing it but uh, again I'm gobsmacked it is it could be his first number one it's a long time coming and it's just very very strange. And this is the part of the podcast where everything gets weird. So from here on out, folks, it's a journey of the strange and the surreal until we tell you otherwise. Um, no soundboard podcast would be in, would be complete without a legal story. And we've got one uh, this month as well. Little Kim, you remember Little Kim, not Mrs. Tuffley, but Little Kim. Um, she is suing her lawyer, uh, Sonny Burkett's, and I believe his name is Andrew Rowe, for a million dollars in money. And she's blaming them for bad business decisions and trying to get some of her money recouped that she's done on business dealings with them. So sort of uh, license, I believe that it's bad licensing and bad marketing kind of a thing. And she's trying to get um, out of her contract with them and she's suing them for a million dollars. So this begs the question, uh, when Sonny Bur- Bur- when they interviewed Sonny Burkatz about it, he seemed very much... You know, she's just trying to get out of her contract. It also seemed very much that she didn't want to do um, much of anything with staying with her contract 
but then she sounds very much like, no, I'm out of this. You guys are screwing me. So what do we think of this, and where do we think this is going to go? To be honest, I haven't heard anything from Little Kim since that she did the dancing show. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I, I'm i not aware that she's done anything since that. And there there could be a new record, and this could be sort of the smoke screen for promotion for a new record, too, even. You know? It could also be the thing where they um, uh, you know, purposely want to get her name back out there and, and do this. But it also could be the fact, too, that she's got a new record, but she's not going to release it till, you know, she's out of all these contracts. It could easily be that as well. So I don't know what to think. Um, well, I, I just, I was, I was just looking here. It, so apparently from what I can tell, she, she signed away like, 44% of her um, uh, stuff, you know, basically uh, uh, say-so is what this article calls. I don't know what yeah. a say-so is worth. For for her stuff where she endorses things and has different products and whatnot. Um, my question is, did, did I'm always yeah. fascinated by uh, people who do stuff like this because I'm like, did you read what you were signing at all? At what point did and, and if if you if you didn't read it, at what point did you realize you shouldn't have signed it? You know what I mean? Yeah. It, you know, it's 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 just one of those interesting things because is it crazy? Is it not crazy? You know, you just don't know because sometimes it's just the artist trying to get out of a deal, and sometimes it's the artist just wanting more money because they need it. And I don't know what to think on it. I just, I'm I'm trying to think of the the products that Little Kim could endorse. Well, I think she probably has licensing could be putting her her songs in films. It could be, you know, T-shirts and clothing. It could be anything, really. I mean, I, I don't really know what her business portfolio is. Because, like, I mean, like, the only thing I could come up with is an energy drink called The Jump Off. <laughs> Which is a great name for an energy drink. Yeah. So you can have that one, by the way. Um <laughs> but yeah, she blames the duo for bad licensing, and she's trying to get out of her contract, according to some of the um, press for it. So I, you know, should she? At what point does an artist get out of her contract after she signs an unfair contract? And at what point is the artist sort of like, hey, you 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 signed this, you have to honor it? Well, I think basically, if you can come to an agreement where both sides can ag and agree that it's null and void, i.e., pay your way out of it, then yeah. that makes sense. But or or if there's something in there uh, that is illegal, obviously that could make the contract null and void. By the way, folks, I'm not a lawyer, no do I play one on podcasts. So this is not. <laughs> please do not consider this legal advice. Yes. Yeah. Uh, look at the advice you gave Judge Judy. Yeah, although, although if, seriously, if those two didn't come up with that energy drink idea, she should sue them. Yeah. I think so. But it'll be interesting to watch where this goes, sort of in the future. Now, moving on to even more, this is going to get progressively more bizarre. I'm just warning you now. But uh, perhaps someone out there in uh, podcast land is thinking, I need some dental work done. Who should I go see? <laughs> you're, you're probably curious about that. My kid needs her braces off, or you know, I need to get a root canal, or what dentist could I possibly get? Well, the answer to that question in this podcast is not Axl Rose. Uh, and and it's not Steve Martin, which would have been an interesting callback. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Axel Rose, remember him? 
Um, it's it's like the gift that keeps on giving, Axel Rose. Um, Axel Rose is touring Australia right now with ZZ Top uh, on a tour with Guns N' Roses, and it's not the original Guns N' Roses, so to me it doesn't really count. But um, he's on a tour of Australia, and recently at a concert in Perth, he did that really strange thing that rock stars like to do, um, where he tried to play to the audience, and he had a mic. And you've seen those. Would you you you've, you've used them, so you you kind of can can speak to this. Mm. A lot of those mics that they carry are heavier than you probably think they are. Oh yeah, uh, well a cordless a cordless mic, um, wireless mic, because it has no wire, yeah. has to have a transmitter in it, so it's a hell of a lot heavier than a corded mic. Yeah. Yeah. And so during this concert, um, he wanted to please a fan and do something cool. So he had the mic in his hand. It was during a, a particular moment, apparently, when they had a lot of strobes and lighting and effects going off. And he thought he'd toss it out into the audience and give it to a lucky fan to get the microphone, right? So it turns out this microphone hit one of his male fans um, in his teeth, in the, in the face, and it knocked out uh, some teeth. And at first the fan was like, oh, I don't know what happened. I've got some chipped tooth. Did I, am I, you know, am I bleeding or what's going on? There's bits of tooth here. And he sees people crawling around trying to pick up this micro, this microphone around him, right? So he's out of, he's out of, uh, out of luck because he has a dental bill that he has to pay for. And Axel Rose, you know, said he was sorry and didn't realize that this thing was going to, you know, cause as much damage when he tossed it. But the fan has said, you know, and he, oh, and he offered to pay restitution for the guy's teeth by signing a microphone and giving him one. And the fan is contemplating suing Axl Rose now because he's got $5,000 in dental bills because of what happened with this. So <laughs> my thinking, being you know stupid, is that, I'm sorry, I'm Axl Rose. I knocked out a fan's teeth by mistake. Surely Axl Rose has $5,000 laying around. I'm going to help him out and pay for his dental bills and turn what has been a series of bad PR moves for me throughout my career uh, into something positive, right? But no, the guy gets a signed microphone. Really? Why, why start now? I know. I know. But just, again, it's a gift that keeps on giving. I, what do you guys think of this? He's lucky the guy, the guy's lucky he wasn't fired from Guns N' Roses. I know. <laughs> what, 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 the guy in the audience? I didn't know he was there. Yes. Oh. He wasn't. Oh. Uh, well, my thing is... That's I'm usually like, Axel's response to everything, though. Fire them from Guns N' Roses immediately. No, hey, now here's the thing, though. Uh, toughly, I think you're on to something. Is that... Not, and, and, not on something, but on to something. Is that basically what, what you do for the fan is you make them a member of Guns N' Roses and then fire them. So yes. you, you get to say, mm -hmm. I was fired from Guns N' Roses. Now, granted, as I understand it, that, that's not, you know... That puts you with a, a, a select group of, say, a couple hundred people. But still, you're in that select group, right? Yeah. I think that gets you at least to the reality show cycle. Uh, hey, there you go. Uh, I, I'm a celebrity. Please punch me in the face, or whatever it's called. Uh, <laughs> now, I, now, my thing is this. Now, I have, never, I've, I have heard of lots of things being thrown into the audience as, as, as here have a souvenir. Articles of clothing, drumsticks guitar picks, stuff like that. Is it really that common to throw microphones into the audience? I have never heard of this before. 
Well, I know that, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, Kiss used to smash up guitars and throw bits of them in the audience. Well, that, but that's, I mean, and the Who did that, and Pete Townsend did that a lot. Well, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's at least bits. That's, you, you know, this guitar is toast. I'm going to toss it. My question is, is the excuse of, oh, I just wanted to give something great to a fan an excuse? And he really, like, did some sort of weird thing which flung the microphone into the audience. And he's covering his tracks. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Because it just I, seems weird to me. I think he put the mic in one of those T-shirt cannons at the uh, the Major League Baseball games. Holy shit. <laughs> That'd be deadly. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, 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 this obviously... Mic first. Yeah, this obviously <laughs> hasn't... <laughs> Uh, this obviously hasn't changed any of our opinions of Axl Rose, but it's still pretty interesting. The guy can't even come up with $5,000. So next month, when we do the podcast, we'll be talking about the guy suing Axl Rose for $5,000. Now, now I, Rob, so, Rob, I'm I sorry. Be, I think that'll be a special episode of Pawn Stars. I yeah. had a microphone signed by Axl Rose. Well, how'd you get it? Well, that's an interesting story. Funny you should ask. Uh, have yeah. you seen you see my teeth? No. Yes. Uh well, that's the other sideshow. Have you seen my teeth? Now, now, Rob. On BBC One, yes. Rob, Rob here, here's my concern, is that you said our opinion of Axl Rose hadn't changed. I wasn't aware I was supposed to have an opinion of Axl Rose. One well, hour in the general public. Oh, oh, us. oh, okay. Wow. Okay, good. Yeah. Sorry. No, okay. Because I know, I know that, you know, it's, it, yeah, it, he's sort of a non-existent entity in some parts of the world. But this was just so bizarrely strange that uh, I had to bring that up. Now, moving onward to someone that, you know, from having just a, going from someone who's had sort of a reckless, horrible relationship with fans to someone that has sort of a different sort of attitude, uh, Taylor Swift. And, you know, Taylor Swift, for the most part, is seen as sort of this, like, do-goody, nice, go-out-of-her-way-for-her-fans-being-accommodating sort of performer. Which normally so, doesn't get her covered on this show. No. But uh, apparently when uh, a woman in Nashville noticed that there were several hundred fan letters addressed to Taylor Swift in a dumpster in Nashville, she took it to her local station and they did a story on it. And apparently they knew they were for Taylor Swift. They were covered in glitter and just all kinds of weird stuff. Um, but literally they found hundreds of unopened letters addressed to Taylor Swift, who claims to always read her fan mail in a dumpster. And after this, Taylor Swift's people have said, you know, we're not sure how this happened. Yes, we do recycle her fan mail after it's opened, but we do make it a point to read the fan mail and answer it when we can, et cetera, and so on. This is an oversight. Corrections have been made, blah, blah, blah. But still, this is, I mean, I don't expect when I send a fan mail to a, to, a, to somebody that they're going to keep it anyway. You know, I didn't think people, since Davy Jones is gone, I didn't think people wrote fan letters, you know, to uh, people like that anymore. But anyway, um, what's our what's our take on this sort of as a group? I'm kind of not surprised, but at the same time, I'm kind of surprised that they mm. let this get sort of as spun as it did. And it, it took them a little bit to, to respond to it, but... Does one? What do we think of this? And two, does this hurt her image at all? Uh, I don't think it hurts her image. I mean, my question is: so is it clear that they had been received by the Swift organization and dumped, or uh, or was it like a big bag of stuff that maybe didn't even get delivered and the post office dumped them? I mean, let's face yeah. it: the post office has a uh, a history of 
getting behind on things and just, you know, stashing them. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it sounds like they were postmarked and they were ready, you know, that they were in, that they were actually delivered. Now, again, okay. they can easily say we never got these and we don't really know, but it's still an interesting sort of a mess to be in as an artist. I think. Well, well I, you know, I don't know because people get a lot of mail. Yeah. And I'm not sure how big her team is. Yeah. But from the amount of mail I imagine she receives, they she still doesn't have enough people to do it. Yeah. So this this doesn't surprise me at all. Mm-hmm. Um I I I think uh they might have been a little more careful about where they dumped them because I don't know, maybe Taylor maybe mail for Taylor Swift probably shouldn't be put in a dumpster at a school, but that's just me. Yeah. Um but but uh, I, I'm not. It doesn't surprise me. I think uh, I, I, I think uh, what, what's more surprising is where they where they the dumping ground they picked. Um, but uh, it's also I, I think uh, if she's got like a street team and the street team's doing this, I, I think you have less control of, of people yeah. like say on a street team that 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 uh, that you know. Probably you're being paid what minimum wage to go through all this mail, or if anything, yeah, yeah. So it, it's possible. Hey, we got to the end of the day, just toss them. But uh, no, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, but but it is interesting because the more, and I think you run into this, the more you have like outside uh, marketing companies handling, you know, the teams and, and things like that, that you get issues like this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. I mean, I don't think we can necessarily blame her completely, but it, it is interesting that she's the person that had this happen to her. That's what kind of makes it interesting. It's it's completely possible she had no idea about this until she read yeah. it on Billboard. Yeah. Yeah, she probably didn't. And and to be fair, like you said, there's probably all kinds of fan mail winding up in dumpsters, unopened, unread, all the time. It's just that somebody happened to find a bag of it, and it belonged to her. So that's yeah. it. Now, moving on to our next subject that's really, really weird. This is amazing. Um, this is, there are certain times when, we, when we, each of us prep for the podcast that we find something and we know it's gold and we can't wait to send it out. And then there's that. And, and then at the other end, when we receive these, these emails with, hey, here's a story idea. You just know that it's so bizarre. You wish you could be in the room when they would read it. And this is one of those moments. Um, obviously, there's a lot of general still interest amongst pop music fans and, and people that like hip-hop in the notorious B.I.G. and his life. Uh, Biggie is still, you know, big big money now, so to speak. But uh, his kids, his uh, teenage children, have now they're now starring and developing an animated musical series. That's right. Biggie's kids are making an animated TV series called House of Wallace. Now, to be fair, it hasn't been picked up by a network yet, but they are working on it. It's called House of Wallace, and the best part is Biggie, Notorious B.I.G., will appear in that show, wait for it, as a ghost. And the plot of the show is that uh, his studio in Brooklyn has, sort of was, was going to get bought out and become a sort of a entertainment factory kind of place, like a bad, bad place where they just turn out bad musicians 
all the time. And they're trying to rescue it and save it. And they had this idea to turn it into something like the Brill, the Brill, Brill Building, where it's like a jingle factory, jingle factory for commercial jingles. And they're going to have different rappers and performers and artists come in and do jingles for products and also appear in the show as special guests. And the ghost of Biggie Smalls will also appear in the series to guide and give the kids advice. So this is pure gold. You cannot make this stuff up. This is the greatest thing to happen to the Soundboard podcast since the uh, Flavor Flav chicken, in my think, in my thinking. So, what do we think of this one, kids? So, is the ghost of Tupac lined up for a guest appearance? No, the hologram, the hologram of Tupac, definitely. <laughs> First, I read this and I say, "Oh, great! This is going on Adult Swim after the Odd Future show." Um, but which uh, it actually would be perfect on Adult Swim. Yeah, actually, it would be. It would probably be hugely popular. I just, I just really want the ghost of uh, Jerry Reed to make an appearance and sing uh, "Pretty Mary Sunshine" through a trapdoor <laughs> over and over and over again. I mean, I'm, obviously, I think it's a homage to those old, you know, like Scooby Doo type cartoons of the '70s and things. But it's just so out there, you know. Oh, we're going to develop a, a, a TV series, and we're going to put Biggie Smalls as a ghost. What you the know, hell? You know, actually, I think this is a, a – I think there may be a thread for this. I think this could be a sequel to the Rick Springfield cartoon. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> because like, he was a magician, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Toughly five points. Damn. We're done. And that's it for the soundboard. <laughs> Good night. Amazing. So I guess we'll keep people updated as this show gets into production and sort of makes the way makes the rounds. Uh and if there's a clip on it, we'll post it on the site. But Wiz, did you have anything to add on this? No, no. I think uh I, I like I said, the, the, it's if you played it right, it would be just so weird it might take off. But this is just the weirdest damn thing that I've heard in a long time. I know. I know. It's pretty weird. But perhaps you'd like to find out about something even weirder. But not that weird. I mean, it's not as weird as the Biggie story, but it's also pretty weird. Um, And that would be the Carol King musical. Now, I know when you're thinking of musical performers that need to have a musical about them, Carol King is the first person that comes to your mind. But uh, there's a show being planned out for Broadway for premiere next year called Beautiful, the Carol King Musical. It's going to be a musical biography developed by Carol King and some of her screenwriters. It's going to open in on Broadway, and she's got some pretty big hitters involved, including a guy named um, uh, Douglas McGrath, who was an Oscar nominee for Bullets Over Broadway. So she's got uh, some pretty big people involved in it. But really, a musical based on Carol King? Well, I don't know. No, well, here's the thing. I mean, it's it's not so weird when you say Carol King musical, because I remember remember she did the music for Really Rosie. Which, oh yeah, which was the which was the uh, the show with um, Maury Sendak. Right? Oh, I forgot about that. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, and there are a lot of compilation shows with the girl groups that are using some of her songs too. So 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 her and musical theater, the, the two of those things. And first, at first, when you when you sent it out, it just said Carol King musical. I thought, okay, well, she's she's done another musical, but the idea that it's about her life, I mean, okay, I mean, so, so what? I I don't know anything about her life. What what? Uh, apart from you know being a songwriter, what 
What is yeah. it? Did she? Did, I mean, did she fight crime? And we just don't know this. Did she? Did she discover pasteurization? I mean, what? What did she do that that would be the focus of this musical? And that's kind of my thing too. Is like, you know, did she struggle? You know, I mean, Loretta Lynn, a musical about Loretta Lynn, you've at least got, you know, uh, an interesting background. Pa- a, a musical about Patsy Cline, you've got an interesting background. Um, but you know, I don't know. To me, when you say Carol King, I, I, I just sort of go, really? Is there, what, what's the story there? You know, I, I that's, and maybe I'm maybe I'm missing the boat here, but I don't I don't see a story here. Well, and the other thing is, is that you could, this could actually be a, um, they, I mean, they call it a jukebox musical, where you've got uh, the songs of a particular artist or composer or whatnot uh, that you form a loose story around, and it's, it's, the story just exists to give people a, a, an opportunity to burst into song. Um, like Rock of Ages or well, ro- well, not even before that. I mean, Anything Goes uh, yeah. was, was, uh, was, you know, Cole Porter. Um, just a bunch of songs and, uh, uh, five guys named Mo, Smokey Joe's Cafe. So, I mean, if you think about the stuff that she's had, had a hand in writing, hmm. you know, so it's, it, so it's sort of like mixtaping with, you know, dancing. Kind of. I mean, yeah, but, but I mean, if you, if you think about, you know, I was, I was just looking because she's, she's written, dear listeners, she's written more stuff than you know, right? She's had a hand in it. I mean, what was, uh, uh, you know, the, the locomotion and um, will you still love me tomorrow were the first two things that sprang up, right? So, so you could literally go from the beginning of her career to the end with uh, performances of not only her stuff but stuff that she's written. And uh, I mean, it's it's a Carol King jukebox musical, maybe. I don't know. That of it makes sense. That makes much more sense now that you guys have explained this to me a little more. Because I did not see here with that broad of a musical palette. So I I stand corrected to a certain extent on this, but I still don't know if her life is that interesting enough to do it. I just, that's, that's my thing. But well, I could be wrong. Well, 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 you know, you just did tapestry by itself and came extreme downer. So no, maybe not, but well, but I mean, Rob, the thing of the thing to bear in mind is if you look at the normal jukebox musical, the story itself is not as important as the music. I mean, if you look at, uh, for example, um, uh, five guys named Mo is okay. basically the the entire story is about um a uh, a guy who is uh estranged from his girlfriend and these five guys named Mo show up to try to school him on why he's a freaking idiot and how to go get her back that's the entire story um mm-hmm. and, and and i mean it's it just basically it's like how do we how do we get the uh, the works of Lewis Jordan on stage that's it that's all it's there for so well that's interesting so I completely misread that and that I thought it was just going to be completely pointless and stupid. But alas, I stand corrected. <laughs> Interesting things happen here at the soundboard. Actually, I was so caught off guard by the Biggie story that the Carol King one just it, it melted my brain. That's what it was. Now, what you need, though, is if Carol King uh, guest stars on the Biggie show, then that would be... To amazing. promote her Broadway musical. To promote, oh, to promote the Broadway, to record a jingle. For the Broadway musical, or if, or if like, or if like the Carol King musical is going to be, you know, the component of the third season of Smash, that that would be weird. Oh, but ow, toughly just hurting me left and right. Don't worry, Widge, it's not happening. <laughs> that now you've put it out into the e trick, and now yeah. it's a possibility. <laughs> 
No, no, no. That'll be that'll be the Pink Floyd musical. That'll be the third season of Smash. Or it'll be a, it'll oh. be a, it'll be in the Carol King fanfic now you, though. You know he's doing the wall. You know it's coming. No, no, I knew about that. But a Pink Floyd jukebox musical would just be. I don't even know. No, okay. I will say this. All right. Here's how that works. Here's how I will accept that. Okay. So people falling, unlike the Spider-Man when people falling from the ceiling is actually part of the show. No, 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 no. I just want to see. I want to see what somebody does a stage production that involves um, several species of small furry animals gathered together in a cave and grooving with a pick. If you if you stage that, then I will allow your Pink Floyd jukebox musical. Without that, you must go home. Wow. <laughs> <sighs> Sorry. And uh, moving on, we're here <laughs> uh, at the soundboard. Um, a couple interesting other little side notes before we jump into our main topic of the podcast. Uh, Trent Reznor recently was on Reddit where he was doing um, a, a sort of a Q&A with fans. Yeah, and... ask me anything. Pardon? Ask me anything. Yeah. And uh, he basically, when someone called into play like, hey, you, you're bringing back all your Nine Inch Nails catalog right before you have a new album out and sort of gave him all kinds of grief about having the new record out and some other things about his sort of the questionable timing of his releases and where his career was going, et cetera. Um, and then this person uh, compared him to Gene Simmons of Kiss and sort of how he was shilling his merchandise and putting things out so rapidly. Um, he basically um, unloaded on her by dropping an F-bomb and a C-bomb uh, on this fan. So I guess the question here is, um, at what point does an artist get to respond back in a less than pleasant manner to a fan online? And should they even do anything? And just, you know, how does this... How does this play out, I guess? Well, I mean, it's Trent Reznor. Yeah. I mean, he, he's... Have you read the man's Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, have you listened to... Well, I know, but I mean, for me and you, yeah, I mean, we get that, but I'm just... Yeah. In, well, in general. Well, first of all, if you, if you show up to a Q&A, and you're going to ask that of Trent Reznor, first of all, I, as I read the question, it's, why are you being a smart businessman? You know? Oh, you're, you're actually, you're, you're trying to, you know, get your Nine Inch Nails stuff out before your new album, which, you know, most people probably don't even know. I mean, everyone knows Nine Inch Nails, but they probably don't know How to Destroy Angels is You. So from a, from a, from a visibility standpoint, why would you actually be smart about trying to promote yourself? I mean, that's how I read this question. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a dumbass question to begin with. All yeah. Right? So, so um, but again, if, if you're coming to an artist like that, I mean, you know, what do you expect? <laughs> I mean, I, what do you expect? There's two frames of mind about this. I mean, yes, at some point, you know, as I guess somebody trying to uphold an image on the Internet or an image at all, and you, you try to think, okay, what's the balance between being polite to fans and blowing off dumbass questions? And I think in the context of the Reddit Q&As, which if you've read any of them, they tend to be a little looser than, you know, sort of the standard press issue kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think within the context of uh, particularly the Reddit Ask Me Anything, I think that was complete. I, I think that was that that was fair play. Yeah. I, I think I think the response was fair play. Um, I think if if he, you know, 
if he just went to like a, a you know, it was, if it was a press thing and he did that, well, first of all, the press guy probably wouldn't have put the question that way. Um, actually, that question has, in fact, come up. Uh, actually, uh, David Byrd and, and uh, he and David Byrd had a discussion about the uh, the whole major label thing. Um, when uh, during uh, David Byrd's tour, he did like a series of interviews uh, touring for his book, uh, the How How Music Works. Uh, and uh, this very question came up uh, that somebody in the crowd had asked about it. And it led to a very, you know, it led to about a 45 minute discussion of, you know, what you do on major labels and what you don't do. So the question has been answered in a nicer way yeah. in public. Um, so it's not like it's not like that answer isn't out there. I, I think the I think number one, whoever got through was trying to be a smart ass. Hey, I'm first along that level. But again, it's in the context of Reddit. I think that's 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 fair game. But even even dropping the C bomb is fair game. Yeah, I it's think the so. word. Well, yeah. you know, again, it's it's and and Reddit puts this on on the front door. We don't screen we don't screen the questions. We don't screen the answers. Uh, good luck. So yeah. So uh, so that's sort of um, again. I, I just think that was fair game. So, well played. <laughs> that certainly, you know, plays into his image. I mean, if this is like, you know, uh, Paul McCartney doing this, you know, then we're all a little surprised. But it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't seem completely un against his character. I'm, I'm sorry, you know, wasn't, wasn't like one of his biggest chart-topping singles about fucking someone like an animal? I yeah. mean, did I, did I, did I remember that correctly? And, yeah. and, and again, I think that is. One of the ones that like topped the charts to the highest, isn't it? Yeah, I believe you are right, sir. But yeah, I think it's an interesting thing to sort of watch. I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you guys, but again, I think that you got to draw a line in what language you use, and I, I just have to wonder if the c word is not a more, if there's not a better way to to, to tell somebody to fuck off than than using that. He should know? throw a microphone at him. Well, no, I should have got an axle to throw a microphone out. But the, you know. so, uh, the other thing I sort of wanted to talk about, um, in a completely meaningless kind of way, uh, Justin Bieber is getting way too much press lately, and it's kind of weird. Right. Uh, well, I mean, he's kind of weird, but the fact that he's getting press. First of all, he's got a lot of rehab rumors. He's been late for shows. You know, he's rivaling Lauren Hill and coming on the stage late. Um, and recently he just sort of released a statement saying, you know, hey, guys, leave me alone in the press. Why are you all picking on me? Kind of that's basically the uh, the long and short of it is, you know, he's basically released, released a statement to say, I don't like the press I'm getting, <laughs> which to me is like, dude, you just put a target on you. What are you doing? So, you know, I, I could I could sum all this up by see also Leaf Garrett. Oh, well done. You are on fire today, sir. Because this is what happens to every single teen idol ever. It's like, you know, they're, they they have this great image for exactly, oh, all of two, maybe three years. And then they get flushed down the media toilet. That's yeah. what happens. Uh, and and, and, and I, I don't know if, if, first of all, I think human beings and their, you know, their 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 nervous systems uh nobody deserves it to be honest yeah. um but 
I think some of these kids who sign up for, you know, who sign up for this, for this ride need to be aware that, okay, you've got two or three years. And when that two or three years is over, you're, you're going to get it. You're going to get it in the worst way possible. Yeah. And you need to be prepared for that. And, and some of these kids aren't, the fact that some of these kids aren't prepared for that, I think is, is, is the saddest thing about it. Uh, Justin Bieber asking the press to leave him alone. They're not going to leave him alone. That's painting a target on your back. And, you know. But he should know better at this point. He After should know everything better. With the paternity suit, um, with all the stuff that's gone on with him, you know, especially with hanging out with Usher, he should know better. I mean, people are going to say, well, but he's still kind of a kid and he's still growing up and whatever. It's like, but the thing is, you know, it's not like he didn't, he, he signed up for this. Yeah. He signed up for this, knowing what's going to happen to him. Um, so I think I, I, I think they just need to be smarter. Yeah. I, I think he needs to have smarter people around him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I and I think you know it's just kind of sad and depressing to watch. Mm-hmm. And it's it, I just think you know well well one first of all I want to apologize to everyone for having us actually discuss Justin Bieber in the context of the podcast. But at the same time, he, I just find it so amazingly stupid that he was dumb enough to sort of bait people like this. You know, it's kind of like when the bully is beating you up, you don't say, Oh, please hit me in the face again. You know, um, it just seems like such a stupid move for someone who, despite the fact that I can't stand his records and he's kind of horrible. Um, I, you have to say that they played the media game with him very well in terms of promoting and marketing and getting his records out there. Then why is there such a big misstep with this? That just mystifies me. And again, trying to get you out of the black stain that has been Axel Rose, the ghost of Biggie, and um, of course our good friend Justin Bieber. I thought uh, we'd kind of move on to our main topic that was a little more fun and a little more light because we've had these really great podcast where we talk about really deep and heavy stuff. And I just thought, you know, let's do something fun, which I know it's me. We're doing something fun. Yeah. I know the sky's falling, but so uh, Morrissey. <laughs> <laughs> so uh Scandinavian death metal. Ah, no, it's Morrissey and Scandinavian death metal. Um, Oh, the, Oh, a Smith's tribute album done by Scandinavian death metal bands. Oh, awesome. It's, it's the new electronic album. No, it's the Apocalypta album where they do all Smith songs. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, moving moving into this a little bit, I was one of the people that was absolutely just watching the Academy Awards, absolutely thrilled, amazed, and just purely charged by seeing uh, Shirley Bassey uh, perform at the Academy Awards. And that's right around the time that I was starting to sort of keep an eye out for things to talk about for this podcast. So I thought this would be a good time to sort of look back and realize, wow, not only have we had 50 years of James Bond, but musically, you could argue that the last five decades of James Bond themes, each one being sort of an event built around a movie, should probably warrant its own discussion in terms of like the Bond, taken as a whole, the Bond music uh, themes, I don't think are generally as widely appreciated as they are. Not, not all of them are, are, are gems, not all of them are perfect, but as a body of work for 50 films, you can't really find a franchise, at least in my opinion, that has just an amazing body of collective work in it. So I just thought we'd sort of look back at 50 years of Bond film music 
not just necessarily the pop records, but the scores and, and everything, and just sort of revisit that um, and judge it on its merit and what we think of it and just sort of how exciting is it to have five decades of Bond music? Well, uh, here, here's, let's, let's just find out where we stand is what I would suggest. Yes. Everybody's favorite Bond theme. Rob, go. Uh, Shirley Bassey. I mean, you have to say Shirley Bassey. It's just, it's, it's timeless. Which, Which one? one? Uh, Which gold, one? Uh, well, yeah, damn it, figure me out. Um, I'm saying uh-huh. I'm going with Goldfinger just because it's okay. the first one that when I heard it, I was just like, "This is awesome." Going back, um, so I, I, I do want to want to give a shout out to that. I'm not a big fan of the U2 record that they did for uh, for Bond or the Garbage record, but. Which one was you too? Not you too. No, I was confused. Uh, they wrote. They wrote Goldeneye. Uh, Tina That's Turner it. Did it. That's oh, it. Oh right, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, Bottom of the Edge wrote Goldeneye. Got it. Got and, it. Yes, but and I'm not a big fan of. I mean, the Adele record is not awful. I for, the the new Adele Bond theme for Skyfall is probably the closest thing to the retro sounding Bond records. Um, but you know, growing up in the '80s, we had the really cheesy Bond movies. So I, you know, yeah. View to a Kill has still kind of got a little bit of a fun, kitschy appeal to me, even though it's pure, you know, useless. But that's kind of where I'm at. I'm going, I'm golden old, I'm going, you know, old reliable, Shirley Bassey, because Goldfinger sort of, I think, was the song, even though there were other Bond themes before it. Um, that and Live and Let Die are sort of the ones yeah. that elevated the Bond theme into something more than just a soundtrack record. All right, Tuffley, what's yours? Um, I'm going to say live and let die, uh, with a, uh, caveat for, uh, we have all the time in the world. Ooh, well done. Yeah. Uh, which, which is technically not the theme for on her majesty's secret service, but I'll mention it anyway. Well, it's Louis Armstrong. I mean, what are you going to yeah. do? Yes. Uh, so. yeah, I, I'm, I'm going with live and let die as well, strictly because while, while yes, Shirley Bassey, yes. And yes, the thing about Paul McCartney, especially in that era is you get like three or four songs in one. So it's like, it's, it's like a buffet. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. So that, and that's, that's the one that I can just, you know, listen to every single time, which is not an Axl Rose callback. So. Um, and interesting about live and let die is that, you know, George Martin produced it, yeah. who had absolutely no experience producing music for films outside of producing a Beatles album. Yeah. Well, now didn't he, well, well, I mean, unless you uh, didn't he like all, produce like the entirety of like Help, including the the soundtrack, the the, yes, the score portion. That, that was in the context of producing a Beatles album. That's true. That's true. Um, because because uh, the deal was wasn't with Live and Let Die wasn't John Barry supposed to do it, but there were tax issues. I think I so. I don't remember, but that sounds plausible. I knew there were issues with it. Yeah, that's why he didn't do uh, Live and Let Die and The Spy Who Loved Me. Hmm. Uh, was because because uh, it was originally supposed to be John Barry and uh, George Martin stepped in at the last minute, but uh, actually really well if you listen to that soundtrack really well done, considering mm-hmm. that you know this is the first time George Martin is trying to score a movie, uh, yeah. which having Paul McCartney as direct your direct your single is probably you can't really fail. probably a good help with that, but uh, uh, nice job for on that one I think, um, but not my favorite total soundtrack. Mm. And it's yeah, and it's interesting because they com- they almost invented the the genre. Of, now there's you know there's always been soundtracks with scores, yeah. But we never sort of got excited about soundtracks really until the Bond themes, yeah. 
you know, we never sort of would wait for, okay, there's a sound, is the soundtrack going to have a big single on it? Or is, is it going to do, well, I mean, this sort of like when the Batman movies came out in the 80s and 90s, it was a big deal to have a lead single from the Batman movie, which was kind of directly copped from the Bond films. And I, I'm still amazed that just going from Live and Let Die to Shirley Bassey to John Barry, all that, all of them, that's a pretty big leap for a film series to do in terms of music. It's kind of fascinating. And well, I completely and forgot the Sheena Easton Bond theme, too, which is also pretty oh, and even And even like Marvin Hamlish from Spy Who Loved yeah. So, Well, yeah, well, well, that's what I was going to say is that um, my, my next, I guess my next question is, because I, I was looking, when I was looking back over the list, you know, the, the huge list of 50 years of Bond themes, um, is that really, I mean, yeah, the Adele song is pretty good. And I, I sort of liked the Chris Cornell song, you know, it was all right. Um, I was more excited about the fact that we were actually getting, you know, James Bond begins more than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, the last really big, awesome Bond theme was uh, Sheena Easton for your eyes only. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, am, am I wrong on this? Did I miss something in there or? You know, I kind of liked the garbage song. I kind of liked uh, "The World Is Not Enough." I, I liked it okay, yeah. But it was not... it was actually the only thing. There are some times that when you watch a Bond film that isn't the one you like, the mm. theme is the thing that you like the most of. And mm -hmm. of that film, the the garbage theme was what I liked the most. Mm. Yeah. Um. I I and I think it's interesting when you look at the stuff that David Arnold done, because uh, I think he co-wrote that with the band. Uh, a lot of the David Arnold stuff tends to mimic the John Barry stuff a lot. Yes. So you don't really, you know, because he's done in other scores, you can tell what's his own stuff. Um, but David Arnold tends, David Arnold's Bond scores tend to mimic the John Barry scores, so they don't really stand out. Yeah. So. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's, but to be fair, I mean, going back to what Widge said, you know. Yeah. With, the spy who loved me. It's sort of you. It, it's really hard to think of like really great Bond themes over mediocre ones. But there's yeah. very few to come. And there was a really dry spell there for a very long time. I think yeah. after Spy Who Loved Me, where it was just kind of like. Well, well like I said, you had, you had well nobody does it better. Carly Simon, yeah. and then um, you had another Shirley Bassey one with Moonraker. Moonraker, yeah. Yeah, and then For Your Eyes Only with Sheena Easton, and yeah. then after that, from Octopussy onward. It's like, meh. I mean, I'd forgotten, aha, I'd even done one, you know, but oh, then again. I did too, until you brought that up. Thanks. Although, 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 wasn't Octopussy the one where it was all time high? Was that Rudy Coolidge? Yes. Okay. I, and I'm guessing the meeting went, how the hell are we going to get a song called Octopussy? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, wait, we'll just, we'll just go with the love theme from Rudy Coolidge. Go with that. Go with they, that. They should have, uh, they should have called Trent Reznor. But it's kind of like, yeah, at the age of six, he could have made the score. Um, but, you uh, know. Was, was Atticus Fitch born at the time? Because I think the two of them could have rightly done it. Yeah, in their crib, what, yeah. With a Commodore 64. Well, the thing that's interesting is that sort of like, it was a big deal then to have a Bond theme. And now it's kind of like with Adele, it's kind of the first time that it's been exciting again to have the Bond theme. You know, it's kind of like. Oh, there's a Bond theme. And we're kind of always used to being let down or at least yeah. treated like it's okay. Whereas Skyfall, I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. But I, I will admit, you know, that's pretty great. That's pretty good. 
and I can see where it has commercial appeal. Um, where and the she's last, getting a I, second shot at this because I, I hear she's doing the next one. Um, which, you know, it's pretty well suited, I think, for the Bond films. And I understand they're trying to get more female audiences into it and getting her involved does that. But, I mean, it, it's interesting just how sort of the movie franchise went bad, went south with music, with uh, soundtrack songs for a while. But still, you know, when taken as a collective body, it's pretty amazing. I mean, you could just say, even if you didn't have the Shirley Bassey or the John Barrier and the other, like, great bonds, yeah. even if they just had Live and Let Die, you could argue that they still had yeah. a good 50-year run with stuff like, you know, the Rita Coolidge record and Sheena Easton and, well, you but, know. But to be fair, I mean, Tom Jones' Thunderball. I mean, come on. Yes, uh, that's the other one I was getting to, too. Fucking yeah. brilliant. And, and, you know, I find it interesting, just as interesting as what actually makes the cut, stuff that's submitted that doesn't make the cut. Yeah. Um, there's uh, for with uh, For Your Eyes Only, there's a thing about the Blondie, the Blondie theme where it wasn't where they had actually gotten Debbie Harry and they just wanted Debbie Harry to do it. Uh, but she insisted that the song be written by Blondie and they dropped them and picked up Sheena Easton instead because yeah. Sheena Easton um, would do more, more likely do the song that they wrote, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. And the Blondie one, um, by the way, and I've, I think I put this on a randomizer once or a playlist or something, but the Blondie one is actually available on the Hunter album. Uh, their 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 Bond theme. Oh, that's cool. Uh, the the for, their version of For Your Eyes Only is actually on the uh, their album The Hunter. Nice. Uh, so if you're curious, go find that. Um, but you know, Metallica's you know submitted like two or three. Uh, Johnny Cash submitted one for Thunderball that's actually on uh, one of his bootleg, uh, one of the bootleg collections, which is really interesting when you get a chance to hear that. Um, and, uh, oh, Alice Cooper did one for, uh, the, the man with the golden gun. <laughs> and the story on that is that Christopher Lee preferred that as opposed to the one that uh, the Lulu version, yeah. uh, because apparently Alice Cooper and Christopher Lee were talking, uh, while he was doing this. And, uh, um, apparently this is the song that came out and they were trying to Alice, I guess, missed the cutoff and yeah. they went with the Lulu song. But there's a lot of stories. Uh, there's one uh, that there was one that 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 didn't make the cut for a theme. Uh, Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that uh, Bacharach wrote, mm-hmm. uh, and actually they had Dionne Warwick and uh, Shirley Bassey both do versions of it, and both of them didn't make the cut. Nice. So a lot of interesting stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting sort of legacy to sort of find out about it, you know, and the fact that someone would turn down one or get not taken for one, you know, plus I I completely forgot about the Metallica and the AHA ones, completely. So I think the Metallica, I think one of the Metallica ones, because I think they they did like two or three, uh, the Metallica one, I believe uh, one of them was No Leaf Clover, which you can find on the S&M soundtrack uh, or the S&M album, uh, which was conducted by Michael Kamen. Uh, which they, they, I think they wrote that mm. one with Michael Kamen, and yeah. he had actually worked on License to Kill. Uh, so there's the Bond connection on that. Now, the other thing, too, I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit with this is that just how integrated the songs are with the films. Like, the songs have almost become synonymous with each film that they do. I mean, it's, it's they're prevalent 
with the way that the Bond films are all marketed with the Broccoli Estate is interesting itself. But just the way that they tie in the songs so intricately to each movie, it's really unlike any other sort of movie phenomenon that's out there. It's kind of interesting. Um, I just think that, you know, it's unique not only in terms of music, but it's also unique in, in terms of film, just to have such a legacy attached to one film. And I just thought I'd see what you guys uh, thought of that, just because, you know, when you hear a particular theme from a Bond film, you instantly recognize, oh, that film, boom. You know, obviously, when you hear Thunderball, you know, okay, that's from Thunderball. But when you hear For Your Eyes Only, you might have to stop and think, oh, what Bond movie it is. But then you'll recognize, then it stays with you, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's that theme. It's synonymous with the movie itself now, instead of, oh, it's that song they did for a film. And I just think that's interesting as well. Well, I mean, that makes sense that I would have forgotten about the AHA song because I pretty much don't think about the Living Daylights whatsoever. Um, so and wasn't, uh, that, wasn't that the uh, wasn't that the last ended up being the last Bond film that Barry scored? Yes. Yes. And and part of the big deal with that was that he and AHA really didn't get along, and there's like two versions of the theme. Yeah. There's like there's like the orchestral version, and then there's AHA's version, which they re-released. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing too is that you know John Barry didn't need to keep doing the Bond themes. I mean, he had he pretty much gone into his yeah. own world of film scores, but he still chose to do them. I mean, I know we touched upon David Arnold, but um, I think had John Barry wanted to keep doing them, we wouldn't have the David Arnold ones. You know? Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that's also interesting, too, is that it's sort of one composer. I'm sure if we had 50 years of Hobbit themes, we'd probably still have the same you know, score and, and, and things with that. But for for one particular composer to stay with a franchise that long it is in and of itself amazing, because even Danny Elfman moved away from Batman, you know, when I, you think about it. I think it was indicative of the Bond franchise, because I, I've just seen a documentary, uh, Everything or Nothing everything or nothing. Yeah. Uh, which was particularly, which, which focused on, uh, the broccoli and, uh, Saltzman, uh, that, that partnership and producing the films. And it very much seems to be uh, very family oriented or at <clears> least, <throat> at least during, uh, at least maybe through the mid eighties, it seemed a very family, family run business. Yeah. Almost. Uh, the Bond films were, and uh, a lot of these guys who kept coming back, uh, like John Barry, uh, some of the directors who kept coming back to make multiple films, um, it very much was treated like a family business. Yeah. And it still is, I think, yeah. pretty much. And then, and a lot of those... Uh, uh, yeah, uh, because uh, Barbara and uh, Michael G. Wilson are, I think, related to, uh, are all actually, it's still the Broccoli family that that, that produces. Yeah. And I mean, it used to be, too, where being tabbed to do a Bond theme was like a big deal. Yeah. And that sort of, lost, I know I touched upon this earlier, but it sort of lost its luster. But now I think it's a big deal again. I think since Daniel Craig took over... I think doing a Bond theme is sort of like a cool thing to do again. Yeah, well, I, think it, because, it, I, I think because people get it. I think people get yeah. what it's supposed to be, and 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 especially with thematically with uh, the films kind of going back to basics. Yeah. Uh, the back to basics approach. It's very easy to go and do a song that reflects the movie or the story, as opposed to. 
you know, trying to hit a current trend, which is what I think particularly viewed what kill yeah. and, and, and the living daylights did, um, yeah. which was just hit a trend. Um, that was not necessarily had anything to do with the movie. Um, so I think that's, that's a good thing. Well, and I think you're also going to, I would be surprised if Arnold didn't come back, um, for the next film because Sam Mendes isn't directing. He's yeah. already, he's turned it down and Sam Mendes brought in Thomas Newman for Skyfall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm, I think he did Skyfall and has been in the last three. What Arnold? Uh, he, no, uh, Newman. No, no, no. He, he was just brought in for Skyfall. Uh, Arnold oh. did like the, the five before that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they wanted something I think different, <clears throat> and it did kind of work. And I could I, Arnold would be interesting to work with Adele's voice too. I mean, it, that would be really kind of interesting. Um, it, it, you know, there, there's a couple artists that you're surprised didn't do Bond things too. Like I've always thought, you know, had Amy Winehouse lived, that she would be a perfect sort of artist to do a Bond film. Mm-hmm. She actually, I believe, tried to submit one for Quantum of Solace. Yeah. Uh, her and Mark Rodson had actually done one, um, and I'm not really sure what happened. What happened with that? But at one point, she was going to release it yeah. uh, when the uh, when the Alicia Keys Jack White one went public. Um, so I, yeah, but uh, uh, Amy Winehouse did actually record one. Um, we will probably hear it soon, posthumously, on one of the collections that yeah. will no doubt come out. So did either of you other fine gents have any other comments on 50 years of, of Bond movies and, and uh, our movies, music from Bond movies? Good Lord. Sorry. The pressures of being in charge. Um, do you guys have any other thoughts on those or what you, who you'd like to see do one or where do you, you think you'd like to see oh, them go? Well, that's I, a good question. Who would you like to see do a Bond theme? Hmm. Um, I think uh, uh, Tina Topley Bird should do one. Ooh. I, I imagine Ooh. at some point Florence and the Machine would probably do one, just because that seems like the kind of artist that would do one. Yeah, I, I, I imagine they would be they would be asked. Yeah, um, I would I like can't. I would like Michael Patton to uh, Mike Patton to do just a, a a cover album of nothing but Bond themes. I don't know that I want him to do a Bond theme, but yeah. I would like to considering how how uh, awesome the uh, Thunderball cover that Mr. Bungle yeah. did is. Um, and he should do actually he should re record all the Bond themes in Italian. I've got I've I've got a couple I want to throw out there for interesting sake. Uh the first thing Regina Spectre. Mm. Which I think would be interesting. The other one which I think would be far more interesting and could really add a completely different dimension to a Bond film uh song would be Amanda Palmer. Huh. You think? Yes. I mean, I think she could behave herself well enough to do one that would be really interesting. And I think she could do something stylistically different than anything she'd done before. You know, yeah. she could do something with an orchestra. She could even do, you know, some sort of 20s thing, or she could do a, you know, a smoky barroom type thing um, that I think would be interesting. And I, I, I'd almost like to see Esmeralda Spalding take a shot at one, too, just to see what happens. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. The the, the one band that, that sprang to mind when you were talking about that, because um, they're basically doing what Bond stuff, themes now. Well, well, just about is is like Muse. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say they're they're sort of campaigning to get one, aren't they? 
pretty much. And I, I you know what? I'm I'm okay with that. Um, and, and it's that's for that's for big pseudo apocalyptic sort of craziness. Uh, yeah. However, if you wanted just to go for the female vocalist route, uh, I would also say uh, Saint Vincent. Ooh, yes, yes. So also a very good idea. Yeah. Although, although, and I'll throw this out just just because this is a thought experiment uh, to entertain yourself with, dear listeners, is imagine, <laughs> imagine if you will, Tom Waits doing a James Bond theme song, or Nick Cave. Or Tom Waits and Nick Cave. <laughs> I'm I'm surprised Nick Cave hasn't submitted one, and he probably has. Well, when they have Bond ones where they shoot people in the head and you graphically see the head split open, then yeah. <laughs> no, I, actually, I would imagine Nick Cave would insist on writing the script for the film. <laughs> it would be awesome, though. <laughs> Uh, that, that's what it's called. Um, it's called murder with a license to kill ballads. <laughs> yes. The <laughs> good Lord, that'd be awesome. <laughs> oh my God. Um, do we, do we want to take a stab? I'm curious to know this. So we know everybody's favorite bond theme. Um, everybody's not so favorite bond theme. Uh, Mm. I didn't love the Cornell one, um, and I didn't really love the garbage one very much. See, but I really I, hated the Aha one. Yeah, so, I was going to say it's it, it, for me. It would either be a toss up between Aha and Glass Night. And the problem is, well, Glass Night is such a misfire because it really could have been so much better, and I just think it was awkward. Because um, I could see her doing a good job, but I think by the time Aha did the Bond score. It was kind of over for them. And I think that, you know, that was more such a big focus on this is our big comeback instead of let's make a good record, you know, for a Bond theme, that that really, really hurt them. Well, I think what they were trying to do with with The Living Daylights was try to outsell View to a Kill because View to a Kill is the one that's, uh, I, I think even with the Adele single, I think Vito Akil is still the, the highest selling Bond theme. Yeah. Uh, well, well, Duran Duran is probably at the time when they made it the highest profiled artist to do one up yeah, until and, Adele. And it's interesting that, you know, at the point where they, even even as that band, uh, the, the point that Duran Duran did Vito Akil, they were just about bringing up. Yeah. I mean, the, the five piece, that's the last. Because the next the next iteration of that you saw was like when the other two guys left. Yeah. Um, we got into Power Station and all that. Power Station, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which wouldn't have been a bad move for them, but. Um, I still like the Saint Vincent idea, though. But yeah, but uh, I, I think with with I think the producers were thinking we should try to top the Duran Duran single, not necessarily just picking the band. Yeah. You know, and I and I think what the Bond, I think the Bond producers do and tend to do well is try to match, um, try to match at least the song to the performer. Yeah. Um, in, in cases where the performer did not write the song. And mm-hmm. I believe um, that's only true in the case of McCartney, Adele, and... Um, 
Oh, who else? Because I think I think the other the other Bond themes were actually written for them. Yeah. Um, I, I I think uh, only only McCartney and maybe Adele and maybe somebody else had yeah. actually written their own song. So uh, they do a pretty good job in pairing having that in mind. Hmm. Um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a song that I thought should have been the theme to the film and wasn't. Uh, Katie Lang did a song called Surrender uh, for Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, that should have been the theme for that film. Um, and they ended up going with Sheryl Crow. Oh, I forgot about that one, too. I, yikes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and if you get a chance to look that up, go look up the song Surrender from Katie Lang that's on the, uh, the, the Tomorrow Never Dies soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, again, stunning. And should have been the theme for that movie. Hmm. But uh, I guess my least favorite Bond theme, yeah, I was going to say Gladys Knight. I will say Gladys Knight because it's ill-timed. Yeah. And, and, and it, it would have been fine had it not been as highly synthesized as it was. Um, I think if you had pulled back on the synths and actually brought in an orchestra... I yeah. think it would have been better. Um, so I think I, I think Dalton got the worst themes. Which, yeah, yeah, which I would is, agree. Which is so wrong because if you look at it, if you look at it now, um, and they made a point to say this in the documentary that they may have been, you know, the Turtle Wax Prize for Dalton, which is basically he had the right idea. They had the right idea by going, you know, back to roots and less gadgets and and stuff they just did it at the wrong time yeah uh, because you know the reboot is is if you strip back some of the artifice the reboot with daniel craig is, is kind of the, the same tone as the dalton films yes but better written but better written um but 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 it is the, the exact same tone yeah i think you're right he just got i i but but yeah dalton's got the worst themes <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry, yeah, man. I did. Yeah, I did. no, it's okay. It's okay. Spit the camera on a Who episode. That's fine. But you got the worst <laughs> theme. So, Widge, do you have anything you want to add? No, I mean, I, I just, <clears throat> to me, there's Bond themes kind of go into three categories. There's either the awesome, right? You got your Tom Jones and your Paul McCartney. You got your, yeah, it was there and it did its job, which is most of the others. And then you've got the oh, there was a theme, like with the aha. I mean, I cannot, yeah. I cannot bring to mind that song. I can't even comment on whether or not it's my least favorite because I don't even remember it, you know? So, I mean, there's, it's sort of hard to not have a reaction to it. Yeah. Um, and I think it also helps that, uh, you know, even, even stuff like, like I said, the Chris Cornell, having seen it paired with the opening credits of the film, for the first time that I heard it, really, um, you know what what the song lacks, the my memory of enjoying the film helps bolster my opinion of the song. Yeah. So. But yeah, that's pretty much it. That's a great way to categorize them, actually. So that's yeah, actually a perfect way to uh, to think about each of them. So. I think you I think you've touched on it. Um, so anything else on Bond before we uh, we wrap it? I'm good. You're I, good? 
I, it'll be interesting to see if Adele can 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 pull it off twice. Yeah, I, if anybody could, I think it's her though. Yeah, agreed. So it'll be inter- it'll be interesting to see if she can do it again, uh, which she's going to. So well, you only live twice. <laughs> but um, so I guess we'll wrap this edition of the soundboard. Um, again, please check out the uh, Need Coffee uh, website and go to Amazon. What's the address again, uh, which if they yeah. want to just directly bookmark it? Sure, just go to needcoffee.com slash Amazon, and that redirects you right to the Amazon front page like nothing's happened. And uh, the other thing you want to do is check out uh, Need Coffee, our Twitter and uh, Need Coffee Facebook feeds, because we do Music Mondays and sometimes Music Tuesdays, which are updates on new releases and just general thoughts about albums, new, old, uh, or overseen but discovered. All kinds of interesting stuff happening with those. So if you kind of want a nice um, in-between break for the soundboard, please check those out. And if you see things like that, please like them, share them, and uh, retweet them, all that stuff, because it does actually really help us out a lot. Uh, also, Tuffley has the randomizer. You talked about that as well. When are we going to have that starting up again? Um, there is one actually currently that is out as of when we did this. So it is available on Spotify now and all of the previous versions are available uh, on Spotify as well. Um, and you can actually follow people. So if you would rather just follow me period on Spotify, you can do that now. Yes. You can, each of us is on, is on Twitter and Facebook as well as, uh, available through need coffee. So I would highly encourage uh, you guys to do so out there in uh, podcast land. And uh, please, you know, when this podcast is up, like it and uh, reshare it and do all that fun stuff that keeps us, uh, keeps us all going. So rounding off edition 33 and a third for the soundboard, I'm Rob Levy for uh, Mr. Tuffley and Mr. Walls. Thanks for listening. Bye. Was was thirty three and a third the one that they fired Peter Tork or the one Mike left on? I didn't remember, but I was thinking about that. But I couldn't remember for sure. <laughs> I think it was one of the Naked Gun sequels, actually. Ah. Ouch! Yeah. And stopping. <laughs>